Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. This is a very special episode of the podcast because we're going to be discussing repeal one year on and celebrating that incredible victory for women's rights when Irish people voted to remove the Eighth Amendment from the Irish Constitution. But even more importantly, we'll also be discussing what still needs to be done in terms of women and reproductive rights close to home in Northern Ireland, where women live under an even harsher regime than the one legislators in Alabama have passed into law, but also further away in countries such as Malta, in Poland and Brazil. We're going to have Sorka Tunney from Amnesty Ireland, Orla O'Connor from Together for Yes and the National Women's Council of Ireland and on the phone from New York to tell us about the situation in America. We have journalist and activist Katha Pollitt. We'll also be discussing a new one-woman play by award-winning Welsh writer Rachel Trezise, which follows the journey of a working-class Belfast woman as she travels to England for an abortion. So, yes... Today's episode is all about this one year anniversary of repeal. Personally, it means a lot to me because in 2015, I spoke about my own abortion story. Um, I suppose like many other women, just feeling like we needed to do something. We needed to start talking about this subject in a different way. And the likes of Tara Flynn as well and lots of other people who did that, I think, um, had a big impact. But when I think about uh, this this time and the work that went into uh getting this vote, whether it's politically with Simon Harris and Leo Varadkar and, and, and Micheál Martin, politicians I, I never thought I'd see supporting reproductive rights for women. Um, and also then all the amazing organisations like the Abortion Rights Campaign, Together for Yes, the Exile Project who collected all those beautiful photographs of women who'd had abortions and put them on a website, the In Her Shoes organisation, the Migrant and Ethnic Minorities for Reproductive Justice, um, women like Anna Cosgrave with her appeal jumpers, the Doctors for Choice, the Lawyers for Choice, uh, the Terminations for Medical Reasons group, uh, Repealist, you know, the, all the people making jewellery like Shabangi. And I'm thinking as well of the Radical Queers Resist who were so helpful in covering up those awful anti-abortion posters that were outside the Irish Times for a while and outside Trinity College and many other places. And then people from afar, the support of others like Catelyn Moran in England and Amanda Palmer in America. There were so many people who were so happy internationally to see this development occur and really did see us and do see us as this beacon in what are quite dark times for women and reproductive rights. All sorts of people who in all sorts of different ways came together to make this happen. I just feel so grateful and so empowered by the fact that there's so many wonderful, wonderful women and girls and men and boys who who got behind this issue. So it's a great time. Um, 
somebody, when we're having our conversation today, someone talks about the post-traumatic stress of it all. I think some of us are still experiencing that. I think it took a lot out of a lot of people and that should be mentioned too because especially when you, you lay out your own personal stuff out there, it does have repercussions. But this is a really, really special time. I'd like to say particular thanks as well to one of my colleagues here, Kitty Holland, who not only broke the Savita Halepanavar story, um, that very tragic story, which which really galvanised so many people and got so many people on board um, for fighting for the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. But also then during the campaign, she spoke about um, her own experiences of two abortions very bravely. And I'd also like to give credit to the women's podcast here because we tried really hard to make sure that... Um, um, this issue was given as much uh, coverage as it could be in all the different ways and all the different stories that needed to be told. And we hope we did uh, as much as we possibly could to contribute as well. So many reasons to be thankful, but also, as we'll discuss on this podcast, many things to stay vigilant about when it comes to reproductive rights. Now, this time last year, we were gearing up for May 25th, the date of the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment. It was a momentous time and we wanted to look back on that, but also to look forward and outward to the situation in other countries and, of course, in the north of Ireland, where thanks to Victorian legislation, the 1861 Offences Against the Person Act, women live under an even more restrictive regime than the one Alabama legislators would like to see operating in that state in America. Joining to discuss all of this are Sirka Tunney from Amnesty Ireland, on the phone from New York, pro-choice activist and journalist Katha Pollitt, and Orla O'Connor, director of the National Women's Council of Ireland, Time Woman of the Year and one of the leaders of Together for Yes, that grassroots movement of women. You are all very welcome. Orla, I'm going to start with you. This time last year, can you yeah. remember what you were <laughs> feeling? We were all yeah. kind of... I think we were all our on nerves tenter were gone. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about that today because a lot of people from Together for Yes just, you know, got together to, to remember the moment. And yeah, I think we were all on tender hooks. Very, very hopeful, but at the same time, not really sure and, and, and afraid to believe that this could possibly happen, that we could remove the amendment. So yeah, I think, I mean, it is really important, I think, to mark the anniversary um, of repealing the eighth because it was such a momentous moment in Ireland, a momentous moment for for women's rights, for reproductive rights, um, and and in such an, an incredible shift, really, in terms of a moment of change for women in Ireland, um, and for so many different reasons. I think in terms of you know what happened in the lead up to the campaign, women really putting themselves out there and being so brave and courageous, and then finding overwhelmingly the whole country is supporting them. Yeah. Um, so yeah you know, a really incredible time and, and very important, I think, to remember in terms of what it means for, for women's rights going forward in Ireland. Which we're going to definitely talk about later on. Katha, you're co- joining us from New York and you were actually over here when all of this was going on. And um, What are your thoughts now, that a year later? Oh, yes, I was there. It was so exciting. I was there for the week before and uh, it was just the most exciting, fascinating time. Um, one thing I noticed was just how uh, surprised everybody was <laughs> that the vote was so decisive. Yeah. You know, even a few days before, I would meet people who said, well, you know, we think we're going to win, but, you know, not by a lot, or the country people are going to be a problem. Men aren't going to vote. You know, you'd hear people talking about men who would say, oh, I'm just going to, I'm not going to vote. I'm going to leave it up to the women. You know, thanks a lot. But... <laughs> But it, that none of that turned out to be true, and it was just so 
uh, exciting and vibrant. And let me tell you, as an American, where we have our own troubles with uh, legal abortion um, that are getting worse and worse, I just felt Ireland's leading the world. That's brilliant. And Circa, in Amnesty Ireland, you had obviously worked so hard as well on the campaign. What were the feelings for you and what do you think now one year later? It seems to have flown, hasn't it? Like... Yeah, it's gone very quick. I think there is some maybe post-traumatic stress after the <laughs> campaign that we had to process. But a year on, it was just, oh, it was just such a weight lifted off of our shoulder. I think for so long, we thought that this would never change or and even then during the campaign that we'd get it wrong or we'd, oh, that we'd just mess up or something. And so it was just, it was a very tense time. Like, obviously, there was these magical moments. And I think in Dublin on the day of the results, I just went off, left the castle for a while and met some of my friends and just to see this kind of intergenerational kind of people hugging. There was such a happiness and relief across the country. So, yeah, it's it's been massive, like a lot. Like even today, like we're nearly a year on and like we have services in our country that we never had before. Yeah. Like abortion is, no, is a word that we can say in the public and we can talk about it in a very calm, reasoned way and, and really, really know the issue. Like I think that's something about the, this country that we know what denial of abortion services means. And I think hopefully this is something, this win is something we won't lose and we'll keep fighting for because we do have to, as we'll hear later, like in the US, this is something that we do have to fight for exactly. and continue to fight and for. And you're right, we have the services since January 1st, which is incredibly fast in a way. I mean, I, I, you know, I think things in this country often don't happen when you want them to. But Simon Harris, fair play to him, the Minister for Health, was really um, keen to make sure that the services got in place. But Orla, we still have, um, and Katha, this might be interesting for you to hear about as well. There's uh-huh. still things we need to work on in terms of access to abortion. And there's also the issue of exclusion zones around um, clinics, because we still are having people protesting now outside GPs, um doctor's uh, offices, you know. So, uh, Orla, what what are you going to be talking to Minister Harris about and telling him that we still need to work on? Because I think we can't rest on our laurels and America Absolutely. shows us that as well. I mean, it is, it's it, on the one hand, it's great that we're here talking about the problems with the service because there is now a service and women are accessing it and are accessing it well. And I think that is really positive. But there is so much that needs to happen. And we have seen, um, you know, over the last, you know, s- seven months, the the fact that people are out really intimidating women in terms of trying to access the service and there was the promise of the legislation in terms of preventing that from happening and what we're calling exclusion zones and that really needs to step up and that legislation needs to happen because it's so important that women can access that without fear of intimidation and it's also really important for for our GPs, for the providers that they can provide that service without that fear as well and also for, for, for others using their services and we've seen it sporadically throughout the country but it's very important that there is legislation there to protect women and and to protect the service so we will be saying that to the Minister tomorrow and also as well I think it it is really important that one of the promises made to people at the time of the referendum was about the issue of contraception and free contraception and that's critical and and that's been very slow in terms of progressing that and you know we know in the Women's Council from all the work that we do around both you, you know reproductive health but all areas in terms of women's health the the issue of contraception is key Um, and so we want to see the Minister really progress that much faster than what he's currently doing I think the the government are lagging behind on that one And Sarka you'd obviously agree with that you're not in a way Yeah yeah, it's a key point like obviously all of us want to make sure that the service like works but also that we have like good access to contraception so that that was a key point that came out of the Joint Directives Committee that that, like good healthcare and good reproductive uh, services have 
contraception and abortion. And together they can ensure that women have access to preventive pregnancies. But when an unintended pregnancy happens, then you have abortion services. Another, I suppose, for, for Amnesty International, we've been we're campaigning for a human rights compliant legislation and law. Um, and so for us, decriminalisation, so medical providers are still criminalised when they provide abortions outside the law in Ireland. And this is something that we really feel needs to change. So we would be raising that with Minister, for Minister Harris. But also it's an issue for us as though the women that are left behind, like we don't have any full stats at the moment about what the service looks like and who are accessing, which women or pregnant people are accessing and who, and who aren't. But we do know that there, there are still women travelling to the UK and um, some qualify, like would qualify, we're hearing. So they just feel it's easier to travel to the yeah. UK. So it's just like once we have that information, those changes will need to happen. Um, and probably we have a review of the law before that review, maybe some of them, because they are impacting on women's health. And that was the that was the reason why we had access. Like we have this campaign because denial of services impacts mm-hmm. on women's health. So. Katha, have you any thoughts on any of that? I mean, in terms of the exclusion zones, you, you're used in America to the protests outside these places, aren't you? Yes. I mean, it's, it's really terrible. There are um, some places, as there's a clinic in North Carolina that is regularly protested, and they have a huge megaphone, and they use it to shout, you know, their anti-abortion slogans and tell people that they're... Um, they're killing their babies and all like that. And it's so loud that it's very disturbing for the people trying to do their work inside the clinic and for the, and for the patients too. Um, and they keep going, they keep trying to get the city council to, um, uh, to, you know, make the, uh, to quiet it down. But, it, you know, it's a little quiet for a while, then it goes back up. And that kind of thing is happening sort of a lot um, that um, clinic protesters or as they call themselves, sidewalk counsellors, are getting more aggressive. Um, yeah, and so we need to really watch that. Uh, do, you, there isn't any laws there then, Katha, about that. I mean, there, people are free to do this. No, no, they're supposed to... Well, there was, uh, you know, the equivalent of an exclusion zone. You had to stay a certain number of feet away from, uh, from the clinic. And um, that's sort of gone by the wayside because of a Supreme Court decision that said, you know, these nice, sweet old ladies ought to be able to just, you know, give advice to young women and all like that. So it's it's a very contested area. And, you know, a lot of abortion law in the United States, people don't really understand this, is state law. Yeah. Um, and so what is okay in one place is not okay in another. One thing that we're having a big um, uh, fight about now is... Uh, crisis pregnancy centers. Um, if you don't have those now, you will. And what those are, are they're actually fake abortion clinics. They'll say, you know, come in, we'll help you. They don't say, we don't provide abortion. Mm. Uh, in fact, we'll try to fill you with a lot of falsehoods about what abortion is and tell you that, oh, you don't need to get an abortion. Wait another month. You'll probably miscarry. Mm. Um, all that kind of stuff. Unfortunately, Katha, we do know that because we actually have those rogue agencies uh, oh, operating so here. Oh, I'm sorry to hear we that. We have one particularly that tells women that um, abortion causes breast cancer when they go oh, to them. Oh, but you know this abortion causes breast cancer. This, yeah. that women have to be told this before they can have an abortion is state law. 
in some Did, states, like I, I believe in Texas. This has been debunked so many times, this connection. But it's still, of course, all over the Internet where a woman might easily find it if she goes looking for information. And it's these crisis pregnancy centers make a big deal of this. But in Texas, do, there's a script that doctors have to read to um, to patients. In te- and te- it's not the only state where it, where they have to do that. And in it, it says, you know, oh, abortion has been associated with um, suicide, mental illness, lifelong depression, breast cancer, you know. And doctors who know that this is not true still have to read this to patients. It is a complete invasion yeah. of doctors' right to treat their patients as give them the best medical care. Yeah. And I think what's going on in America just sends a real message to us how, uh, you know, no matter how wonderful the achievement was and the victory was this time last year, that you cannot rest on your laurels in any way. We're going to go on to talk a little bit about the North in a bit, but Katha, can you just kind of tell us, it's very depressing news we've been hearing from America in the last while with Alabama and then Missouri and how is it from your point of view observing all of this and, and what are the things that you're most fearful of around all of that? Well, uh, what I'm most fearful of is that there'll be more of these bans. And the purpose of the ban, you know, they're not going, I think, um, sorry, judges will not let them go into effect. But a lot of women will believe they've gone into effect. You know, people don't keep up with abortion news on a daily basis, (laughs) which you kind of have to do in the United States. And um, also, one of these cases could wend its way to the Supreme Court. They could use it to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is the federal, you know, the constitu- the law that says you have a constitutional right to an abortion um, in the first trimester of pregnancy, and if, uh, and, and also in the second, although it can be regulated. Um, and uh, naturally, I'm very worried about that. Um, it's an interesting thing that's happening, though, which is that there are states, and we hear not so much about them states like New York State, where I live, that have become more pro-choice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, New York, this, this, the state legislature uh, voted to uh, take abortion out of the criminal code and make it, you know, just regular me- medical procedure like any other. It expanded your right to an abortion for reasons of life and health in, um, in the third trimester. Um, so that's, and other states are... Uh, allowing, uh, Maine just voted to require uh, state health insurance to cover abortion so that, you know, there are good things happening in California and in um, Oregon or Washington. I always confuse those two mm-hmm. states. But, you know, so it, we're becoming, we're becoming that patchwork nation yeah. that Roe, interestingly enough, Roe was intended, was partly motivated because that was happening. So that if you could get to an abortion clinic, if you lived in New York, you were fine, or could travel to New York, you were fine. But if you were a poor woman in Michigan, you were out of luck. And that was one of the reasons why uh, that decision came down, because that's, it's not fair. Um, and I think we're moving back. Yeah, we're moving back to that, and we're blaming Mr. Trump, I suppose, on all of this. Oh, come on! A lot of this is his fault. <laughs> yeah. He was no, I'm, I'm with you on <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he was very emboldening to the right to life movement. Yeah, um, because and you know this is the thing that's so interesting. Just to say one more thing, and then I'll shut up. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody's always asking. You know, look at these evangelical Christians. You know, they say they care so much about marital fidelity and rape and all those other terrible sins that that um 
uh, Donald Trump has been involved with, and yet they vote. They they are his biggest voting block. They are solidly for him. And if you ask them why, they will say, "Well, it's the courts. Abortion is it's their number one issue. It's like their only issue." So they're willing to forget all of those other indiscretions they will forget and things. Everything. Yeah. That is the only thing they care about. I think it also shows as well, though, how we can never take women's rights for granted, um, and that it they're always in some ways contested. Uh, and I think Trump is really showing how, you know, he, he's been able to really sort of undermine um, the gains that have been made and, and is doing it as well. Yes, in terms of uh, reproductive rights, but also as well in terms of things that, you know, happening around violence against women and, and how, how he's able to, you know, to give a message that is undermining of women's rights in those areas. Mm-hmm. It's so true. There is just, he's bad in every way. What can I say? Yeah, it yeah. was a terrible mistake that he got into the White House. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about Alabama and all the rest is that, um, you know, we've had a lot of people around the world, you know, saying how terrible it is, really um, becoming very aware of how, how dangerous things could get in America. And particularly in Britain, you know, British feminists and women saying how terrible it is. But a lot of women in the North then have been reminding their um British counterparts that actually just beside them across the water in this part of the UK, Northern Ireland, it's an even more extreme um, regime that's going on in terms of women's reproductive rights. So Circa Amnesty have been very involved in that. Um, we've had a case with Sarah Ewart uh, taking her case. She had an FFA, a fatal fetal abnormality and travelled and she's been very brave and courageous to take that case. But um, it's just a, a horrific situation in, in the North. And what are Amnesty doing and what can we all try to do or what do we need to be aware of? Yeah, it's uh, like, I suppose, after the repeal down the south, it was like the first thing that everyone said is the north is next and you can't have a situation where people on the same island ha- can't access abortion services. Like the Sarah Ewer case is back up in the high court in a few weeks and she's trying to get the high court to rule that their laws are incompatible with their human rights because she was forced to travel. There's also the other case of the mother who bought her daughter, the 15-year-old daughter, abortion pills online and she's back in I think in the next few weeks as well her case is back up um, and she's looking at five years uh, potential imprisonment and like what the kind the cruel the real cruelty is that in a, if she was just in a different district within the UK she wouldn't be criminalised at all so like I think when you look back to the situation here in Ireland we all we had criminal penalties but they weren't implemented or, or imposed in, in the north they are being imposed so Amnesty is calling for decriminalisation of abortion and access to abortion services and we are supporting Sarah and all these women in their cases and we're um, that's part of our role but also Actually, uh, tonight we're projecting um, in London, Dublin and Belfast now for Northern Ireland. So the Mazer, who made our lovely repeal uh, mural, is doing one for the Northern Ireland. So on the year anniversary to shine a light again in the north and keep the, that pressure on. And we and like I think all of us as groups like are trying to just offer solidarity, like really mm-hmm. like I know social media can feel like an echo chamber, but it, like I know how important it felt when others tweeted or commented or just just stood there beside you and that's is that's what we're trying to do and like we have a, a small office up there and anything we can do to support their work uh, we're bringing the the campaign on the north and Argentina to the festival so just trying to keep awareness because we do have a very galvanized movement on this issue and I think it's our duty because uh, 
to support other movements and it's something we try and do. Yeah, and so many women in the North showed so much solidarity and support to us here in the campaign in the South and I think, yeah, it's so important that we show that back because of the appalling situation for women in the North and like even in the in the very short term, you know, while women in the North are starting to access access some services here, the, the cost is is so so it's huge. Like we're talking about up to about a thousand euros. So that's also one of the things that we're going to be talking to Simon Harris about, that even in the very short term, women in the North should be able to access services here um, at no cost. Um, but absolutely, it is about really, I suppose, pushing things as much as we can and supporting the women's organisations and the reproductive rights organisations in the North to make sure that abortion rights are available and in the North as soon as possible. Alliance for Choice and the various yeah. groups up there because they're doing incredible work and they, it's a very isolating, very lonely up there as well. I think it's taken a while for because we were so focused on repealing the 8th as well. We weren't mm-hmm. maybe, but I think, like you said, we are galvanised now and we are ready to help uh, the women and, in, the, in the north. And one do. of the things the um, National Women's Council has, has done is that we've set up an abortion working group with many of the organisations, including Amnesty, who ha- were involved in repeal, and so are Alliance for Choice. So we're working in quite a coordinated way in terms of that support and solidarity. That's brilliant. Um, let's talk about other countries because I really wanted this discussion as well as reflect on, yes, great what we did and it is wonderful and, you know, we can say enough amazing things about how we are now compared to where a few years ago even we wouldn't have thought that this would be the case where you'd have legal, safe abortion in Ireland. It is hallelujah. You know, it's amazing. But in other countries around the world, not just America where things are, are becoming more worrying, uh, where, where women don't have any access to abortion. So circa, through amnesty, you'd be obviously keeping a close eye on on all of that. So in Argentina is one particular country. Yeah, Argentina, like they have limited access on limited grounds, uh, but it's still the highest uh, cause of maternal, maternal deaths in, in the country. Uh, last summer, they, they were so close to decriminalising abortion and providing access up to 14 weeks in early pregnancy. They lost in the second round in the Senate by seven votes. Um, but it was like, I, like it was really like it was quite depressing and I, it was Great. Again, we were able to show our support and solidarity and a lot of Irish politicians got involved in the campaign to support the the decriminalisation in Argentina. But I think like two weeks later, two women had died following that vote. And then we had that horrific case. I don't know if you remember of the rape victim the 11-year-old rape survivor who was had been raped by her, I think it was a grandmother's partner, and was forced, like, delay, like tried to access a legal abortion at 19 weeks, was delayed, delayed, and then for, had a forced C-section. And just the impact of that on an 11-year-old's body and, and life. Like, so it's, a, like, there's a massive... Uh, Put, there's been a massive move forward in Argentina. Like you couldn't, like Ireland, you couldn't talk about abortion in Argentina previously. But there has been like popular like culture. Some of the daytime TV shows have done some chat, chat shows on abortion, which is a big change. The feminist movement there is growing, is growing, and they're looking to Chile, Uruguay, who have actually expanded access in their countries. And that movement is like again the solidarity of the women's movements across continents is really coming uh, to fore. There's there's a little while yet to go. Like a change will happen, but there's a, like they can't begin to reintroduce new legislation for a little time. So, but like there was, I think hundreds of thousands of women in green handkerchiefs came out in the streets of Buenos Aires, um, and since then the handkerchief is spreading across the world. And we like we have we we'll have we have it at all our festivals and stuff. So like they're like they feel positive in Argentina, and it's an, it's a good good. It wasn't a good outcome, but there is there there is positivity. 
Other countries have done some good, like Iceland actually expanded access there uh, only the other day. South Korea recently, uh, their constitutional review uh, deemed de- criminalization of abortion unconstitutional, so they'll be cha- they have to change their laws there within before 2020. The Isle of Man snuck in really brilliant <laughs> legislation yeah. at the same time as our changes that were really like really impressive, like full decriminalised, really safe access zones, like really uh, comprehensive legislation that we should look to in Ireland here. Um, But yeah, like we also work on El Salvador, which is a really tough, sad, like full, complete abortion ban. Um, There's up to 20 women in jail uh, for life um, and they've been charged with aggravated homicide. Like, I don't know if you remember the Maria Theresa case. She was a woman that had a a five-year-old kid, uh, didn't realise she was pregnant, miscarried, uh, was found, woke up in handcuffs. Uh, The judge didn't believe that she didn't know she was pregnant and was given 40 years sentence. It was a case that we had worked on for a while and luckily she like a year and a half ago she was released but she's actually living in Sweden because she's for fear that she'd be resentenced like so brought back in um, and she sent a lovely message actually to this country on the day weeks uh, before uh, saying please do it so it was nice yeah. fantastic and Orla Malta is another particularly yeah well they're, they're a country in Europe who, which has now <laughs> now that Ireland has repealed the eighth, the most restrictive uh, regime in Europe and it's really only there for where a woman's life is at risk but what's interesting about the women's organisations in Malta have looked to Ireland very much in terms of how we built up the momentum around the campaign. So they just had their first March for Choice there yeah. um, last month. They, they have also developed a coalition um, similar, you know, to what we did in Ireland. Uh, so I think, you know, that's one of the things that's been happening over the past year in terms of women's organisations looking at how the campaign, the, the, the sort of the, the mechanics of the campaign in a way in Ireland and, and what can be transferred and what people can learn from it. Mm. And I think that's been a really positive piece, um, particularly in terms of how we can show support and solidarity um, and it's one of the things from Together for Yes that we're going to be publishing is a review um, in terms of the campaign as a campaigning tool to, so that that's available f- for um, organisations in Ireland but also outside. That's great. And Katha, you've written extensively about this in your book Pro and just what I love about your work is the way that you normalise abortion and you talk about it. We, we, I think we still have a long way to go in Ireland because I've been at various events where this issue has still been talked about as a controversial thing and you know, we need to watch this whether it's in on a television station or it's at a conference and still this tentative feeling around talking about abortion you know I, I think it's going to be a while until we get beyond that what would you say about that in, in America in terms of the way the conversation I know it's it's worrying what's happening but you have come quite a long way I think in terms of uh, talking about abortion as a thing that just is a fact of women's lives a necessary fact yes um, that's true. There are a number of uh, groups uh, and organizations that have helped to normalize that. Um, one of them is Shout Your Abortion, where women put up their, their abortion stories on a website or and they tweet them and they talk about their abortions. And, you know, it's, we, we hear so much in this country about abortion for rape and incest and, you know, drastic, terrible mm. Uh, medical situations for the woman or the or the um, fetus, um, and that can some. It, I mean, you have to talk about that because that those things do happen, um, and they are more sympathetic. They get people to be more sympathetic, but they also have a way of sidelining the basic fact that most abortions are for for economic and social and personal reasons. 
um, and that that's okay. Um, and I think that that's changing a little bit now. I mean, one thing that's happened in this country is that as the um, anti-abortion movement becomes, you know, really shows its true colors, um, people are, I think, a little horrified. Um, they, they're going so far. They don't even have the rape and incest exceptions in um, most of these new um, six-week bans, you know, that you can't have an abortion if they can see a heartbeat on the monitor or hear a heartbeat on the monitor. Um, so I think that people are waking up because so many women have had abortions. You know, this is the thing that always amazes me. It's one in four women will have an abortion by menopause. Um, there are still huge numbers of women alive who had illegal abortions before Roe v. Wade and can, and, and can talk about that. Um, for every woman who's had an abortion, there's someone who helped her, maybe multiple people, um, you know, the male partner, her, her parents, her sister, her aunt, some friends. Um, this is something that, you know, is very embedded in the fabric of American life and probably the fabric of every culture, country's life. And, and so that to regard it as, oh, my God, it's this rare, terrible, awful mm. thing that happens in these women. You know, how can they, how can they go on? Mm. Um, this is really a misrepresentation of what abortion is. And that way of looking at it makes women feel who have had abortions feel much more alone. It makes women with an unwanted pregnancy feel uh, feel alone um, because they probably know lots of people who had abortions, but they don't know that they know those people. Yeah. Um, so I think the new openness is a very good thing. Yeah. No, I think you're right. Orla, do you, see, do you see that new openness at all? Or do you know what I'm saying when I say that there's yeah. still a kind of reticence that we haven't quite caught up? The vote told us that, look, this is a fact of life. This is what women need. We want to help them. But there's still a little bit of a, oh, but we still can't really talk about it. Do you get yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, a, it's a growing change. Yeah. I don't think um, removing the eighth completely changed that. But I think it certainly gave, um, I think, it uplifted women, but also it, it, it gave a bit more of the space to do it. I mean, I'm very conscious at the moment in terms of talking about the abortion service. We're saying very strongly that we need to continue that in terms of encouraging and supporting women to talk about their experiences. So we ver we want to see that much more part of how we can improve the service and improve the legislation and change the legislation, but that we still need to provide supportive spaces to do that. I don't think at all we can take for granted that, yes, it's just absolutely fine, or that it's, it's comfortable for women to talk about abortion and that a reaction won't happen. Because we are seeing, and you know, many women said that to us when the referendum was over, there was a backlash for some on social media after. And, and I mean, I, I must say, I even notice it in terms of my own social media. I think there's a greater um, sort of protest, particularly from outside of Ireland, in terms of social media and the reaction that, that I would be getting or, or the people in the Women's Council would be getting. So there's definitely still a need for the safe spaces and for supporting women in terms of coming forward and talking about their experience. I think for younger women, sir, as well, people who now are, you know, who voted for the first time, who are in their 20s, like this is what they'll know. They won't have the baggage that, you know, say, or you and I might have lived through and had. So that's a whole new generation coming through who may be able to speak about this in a much more grown up, sensible way that we didn't do until relatively recently. Yeah, like um, what was I think it was like 90% of under 24 year old women voted yes. Mm -hmm. 
But like, like, and Orla will know this as well from the campaign, just the way they spoke, they just approached this issue so confidently, like they knew what they thought about it, they knew how they felt about it. And like I was one of the women that for years just stayed, like knew I was pro-choice, but was quite quiet at times because yeah. I was fearful of how I would be viewed or how people would react to it. So, yeah, there is a is a youthful movement, men and women um, out there that are really know this issue, know that women access the services, know that people need abortions and and it's going to be part of their life. Like, I think. The sex education, like we've we've all we've all like we've made a submission because we know they're reviewing sex education in school. I think that's really important, like that we change how we approach sex education and how we talk about abortion as part of that. Um, but also, I'm, I agree with Orly about like unfortunately we do need women to stay involved and share their experience of the services here. Um, like we we've made a small video that celebrates the role of women and, and women's stories about, at Amnesty International and and trying to highlight how that those women telling their stories made made politicians listen and sit up and finally brought it to their constituents' office and, and, and they understood that this these were normal women, everyday women, but we still need that and that's something that will, while it's hard to say we need that, it's something that will need to continue in this country. Going back to the year's celebrations, Kath, I don't know if you heard that Orla here, who's in the studio with us, and Alva Smith, who I know you saw speaking in New York recently, and Gronia from Together for Yes, were named Time Women of the Year. Um, I don't know if you heard that news, which I is amazing. I did. That's so <laughs> exciting. Yeah, that was, is just so wonderful. I was going to ask Orla how, how, she find, how you find that out. Do they ring you up? What happens? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we got an email and it was a bit of a, I wonder, is this real? <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it was a brilliant recognition f- for the campaign. Um, and we also felt it was a really good recognition for reproductive rights and the message that Time was sending out in terms of, you know, that, yeah, so much was achieved in Ireland, but there was a really important marker, I think, and given what was going on and what is going on in the US in terms of rolling back reproductive rights. So it was an important piece in that way, but a fantastic recognition for what was achieved for for women here. So, yeah, I mean, it was great. It was well, really great. We loved seeing you there up with Oprah and Taylor <laughs> yeah. Swift and all these people. It's amazing. My son was more interested in the fact that I was there with Mo Salah. <laughs> Mo Salah was there. <laughs> and, and Katha, in, in America then, in terms of, you know, Ireland, like you, you said earlier at the beginning that, you know, you looked to Ireland as this leader in a way. It, it, is it a sort of a beacon in a time when things are quite bad where you are? It's true. First you had the gay marriage, same-sex marriage, and then you have the abortion thing. Who knows where you'll go next? (laughs) Very exciting. And, you know, I have to say, how nice it must be to have a sane president. It is very nice. I mean, if you compare Leo Varadkar with Donald Trump... Oh, yeah. Well, Leo's our Taoiseach. Our president is Michael D. Higgins. They're both great. (laughs) He's a strong (laughs) feminist, our president, which is great. Can I just say one thing? Yeah. Which is because you mentioned Malta and also the difficulty that some women are still having in accessing abortion in Ireland. There's a wonderful abortion fund called the Abortion Support Network out of London um, that raises money to help um, Maltese women and Irish women, if they need be, to travel. Yeah, that's Mara um, and I Clark. think they help women yeah, in the yeah. North also. So everybody should go online yeah. and find Abortion Support Network 
and send them send them some money. Yeah, they're brilliant. Mara Clark from Abortion Support is one of the many, many amazing groups, but her particularly in terms of the practical assistance and continuing to do it now for women in the north. For And the one thing we, sh- we didn't say, which we should, is that one positive thing that happened is in 2017, the NHS said they would pay for women uh, who needed abortions from the north, that they would pay for the actual abortions, but obviously you still have to travel and then this stigmatising thing of having to leave your country. So we basically fight on, I think, is a good way to, to yeah. conclude this conversation. Um, we, we need to be vigilant and we need to keep fighting. Any final thoughts from any of you there on that? No, I think we absolutely do need to keep fighting. But one of the legacies of Together for Yes is the mobilisation of young feminist women in Ireland. So I think the, there's a lot of hope and optimism around the feminist movement in Ireland at the moment. Yeah, yeah and Amnesty will continue supporting cases and, and other countries in, in accessing the services because we know it's a human rights issue and that's so important to us. And Cathy, I can take it for granted that you're fighting on anyway. Yes, and I guess my final word would be it's very tempting, and that has happened in the United States, for people to, that for people to say, okay, we fought that, we won it, yeah. it's over. And you're just paranoid if you think it's going to go back. But now we're seeing that paranoids have real enemies, as the saying goes. <laughs> and the people who said, watch out, were right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think on that cautionary note, but also a celebratory note, because it was such a fantastic time and all of you um, played such a part and so grateful to everyone, every single person on this island who who took part and helped and fought and it was just a momentous time. Uh, but yes, vigilance is very important and we fight on. Thank you all for joining Thank me. You. Thank you. Thanks so much. Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary. Now, there isn't much art about abortion. Tara Flynn wrote a groundbreaking musical play about her own journey to travel for an abortion called Not a Funny Word and Eva O'Connor gave us Maz and Bricks, which also featured an abortion storyline. And now as we mark the one-year anniversary of Repeal, a new play called Cotton Fingers by award-winning Welsh playwright and novelist Rachel Trezaise is touring Ireland. It's in the Belfast Mac tonight, Thursday the 23rd of May, and then it's in Derry. And then on the 29th of May, it comes to the Samuel Beckett Theatre in Dublin and the Mermaid Arts Centre in Bray on the 1st of June. It stars Belfast actor Amy Molloy as Aoife, a young woman from a working-class estate in Belfast who tells her story of travelling for an abortion. Actor Amy and writer Rachel joined me on the phone from Wales, where the production was in rehearsal with the Welsh National Theatre and I began by asking Rachel how a Welsh woman like her ended up writing about Northern Ireland and abortion. Well the play started off life as a a monologue billed as a love letter to the NHS to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the NHS. Uh, There was five people doing all different subjects and I wanted to do something about women's rights Um, because at the time Trump I just, I just came in and was uh, threatening to change the abortion law in America. And I was thinking about um, sort of how radical an idea the NHS is free healthcare. And I was, I was thinking, well, we can not only access abortions, but we can access them for free in the UK. Um, and th- I looked up what was, what was kind of new in women's care in the NHS at the time. And that very week, the NHS had started funding uh, care for women in Northern Ireland if they travelled over the, the care would actually be covered. So I thought that was that was quite noteworthy and timely. Uh, so I went with the Northern Irish character coming to the UK for a termination. So that was in June 2017 when the NHS started to, to actually pay for women's um, 
abortions coming from Northern Ireland. But they still had to travel and pay those costs and it still continues that stigma in Northern Ireland that there are, there is. So your play is a monologue. Um, the main character is Aoife. Can you tell us a bit about the story that you um, wrote? Uh, well, Aoife's a working class girl who's a little bit ashamed of growing up on a, on a council estate. So the added stigma of uh, having to lead uh, determination and being poor, all of this um, plays into, into the character in the monologue. Um, but Catholic, yeah, and, ca- and Catholic as well to boot. So uh, all all of those all those things she has to deal with at quite a young age, and horrendous experience of having to travel to a different country for for that kind of procedure. Um, and it's it's interesting because so what I mentioned June seven two thousand seventeen when you when you began the project, and then obviously as you were doing that and writing it, our campaign here in um, Re- the Republic of Ireland was in full swing for the repeal of the Eighth Amendment. Um, so it must have been an interesting writing experience to be writing something like that when such a momentous thing was happening at the very same it was, time. It, it, yeah, it was interesting because when I started, I had no idea that the referendum was coming up. The date hadn't been announced. I didn't know that that was something that was going to be happening. I was halfway through the first draft. But I had time to to hang on uh, to find out what the result would be. So um, the momentum of all the women coming home, taking the journeys home to vote, which, which was so poignant, I had time to, to, to stop and include that in the, in the monologue. And I mean, it's extremely timely, the subject matter now as well, because as we come along to celebrate um, one year since we repealed the Eighth Amendment in America, there's all those um, rights are being eroded in various states like Alabama and Georgia and uh, Missouri. So it's it's kind of incredible how topical it is, too. Yeah, yeah, again, yeah. It's a, yeah. And the article recently about the fact that the rights for Northern Irish women are actually worse than in Alabama because yeah. of some Victorian Defence Against the Humans Act. Um, so, like, literally, this bizarre thing of you have Brexit circling us and what it is to be, what is identity? Are you British? Are you Irish? Are you this? And Northern Ireland is then supposed to technically be part of the UK, and yet these women are being completely left behind. They're in a no man's land um, of care. And um, yeah, it's a political stalemate as well as a human rights stalemate, really. I feel very privileged and delighted to be able um, to help tell this story. But, you know, having grown up in Belfast and being from Belfast and, um, and you know, I, I moved away. And um, I've got a younger sister who's going to be growing up there and I don't know what's in store for her future. So it feels, you know, like any part, if it this if we're given voice to this strong female character who has the courage to tell us what she's gone through, what her experience is. And so I feel so privileged to get to do things that are so close to my heart and soul um, that I feel I can be then a conduit. 
Rachel, um, we in Ireland, we're very used to this country. Um, we kind of, you know, wherever you live, you kind of get used to the different social mores. But you came here uh, to work to, uh, for um, a student exchange when you were younger uh, to Limerick. I, I'm really interested in <laughs> what you thought of Ireland then, coming coming from Wales uh, and coming from Britain. So, yeah, so that was that was 20 years ago. I came in 1999, just for six months, to Limerick University. And what I did a, a, a module, just one module, um, about feminism and women's rights. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So the, the, first, the first lecture was about divorce. And I found out that divorce had only been legal in Ireland at that point for two years. Like, I, could, I couldn't believe it. I, I, I thought, what the heck is this about? Because my parents got divorced when I was three. Being completely normal to me growing up in the UK, and I just I couldn't believe that. What, what, why is this country so behind? And I was going to mention actually about the thing about shame. Mm. Um, I used to read like Elle magazine or Cosmopolitan, and the the like the Mary Stopes adverts at the back would be scratched out with felt tip pen. And I always thought, who's sitting? Who's sitting there scratching that out before? before? <laughs> oh, you'd you be surprised. The <laughs> that somehow then, that's going to stop. Somebody yeah, needing yeah. it. <laughs> I remember trying to initiate a conversation with an with a, a female Irish student about it, say like, what is this about? And she was really reluctant to talk to me. About yeah. it. So, you know, going back to that thing of shame, like let's open the bottle. Exactly. I mean, and it is. I think that in a way. Um, you know, it's it feels in some ways that maybe an Irish woman would have written this play. Um, I read somewhere that you wrote, uh, you said that it feels like you've dipped your pen in someone else's blood, which I think is a really interesting way to put it. But in some ways, the outsider perspective can also be really useful, I think. Do you? Yeah, yeah definitely. What? Yeah, yeah, I suppose, I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, I wish, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of the script and I'm glad I've written it. Um, I'm glad of the response it's getting, but I wish an Irish woman had written it because it, it, it's an Irish woman's story to tell, really. Yeah, at least you've got me. <laughs> <laughs> but Rachel, I don't. I'll be up there paraphrasing. <laughs> and Rachel, I'm not really just personally. I'm not a fan of this new thing that seems to be happening that everybody can only tell the stories that they've directly experienced. Mm. You know, I think yeah, yeah. if we end up yeah. like that, we're going to be much poorer in terms of our art and um, the way it's expressed. Oh. So I wouldn't be feeling too bad. And I think there's something very serendipitous about the way it came about for you, that you weren't particularly going after this story, but it almost mm-hmm. came to you and it felt inevitable that you would have to write about it. Yes, well, yeah. And as far as it, as far as uh, production for National Theatre Wales, I think a lot of people in Wales and in England are not, not aware that on average there's 30 women coming over from Northern Ireland mm, to get yeah. a termination every week. I don't, you know, I, a lot of people are unaware of that. So... I mean, I wanted to tell people in the UK as well that actually part of our own country, it's still illegal. Everybody's, you know, uh, outraged about what's happening in Alabama, but, no, but nobody seems to realise that it's ha- actually happening in part of the UK. This is the very first time okay. that National Theatre of Wales will have toured to Ireland, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And um, we will open in Belfast at the MAC on the 22nd, 23rd of May. So it's, it's, a, it's a very poignant place to open it. I'm glad we can open it in Belfast. Um, so yeah, it's a first time and a fir- first time for you, Rachel. Yeah, definitely first time for me. My my work has never been shown outside of Wales. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it must be a kind of <laughs> a slightly daunting. I mean, you're going to be showing it to audiences who've lived this 
and experienced mm, this mm-hmm. or at least who know people who have it's so real and so dark for so many people at the moment is that um, I mean that's something exciting I suppose in a way because what I found Tara Flynn wrote an amazing piece called Not a Funny Word and it was about a, 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 her own story of travelling um, for an abortion and it was incredibly empowering and liberating just to see a piece of art that reflects something that has been so taboo and something that we've had to hide away from uh, so I think it's going to help a lot of people Yeah I, yeah. I hope so I think you know Aoife is a she's so charming and direct mm. you know she doesn't really she goes she kind of knows you're going to judge her mm-hmm. she knows as soon as the words come out of her mouth you're going to you're going to be looking at how she is what age she mm. is how she talks how strong her accent is and but she just embraces it and has the courage to te- to tell her own story honestly and um we had a, a, like a rough run through today um because we've only had about two weeks to turn around this, <laughs> this script, you know. So um, we had a rough run through today, and actually some people came in to see it, and we even had one, you know, person at the end saying, I never told my parents, and I can't tell them. Yeah. But there they were suddenly sharing yeah. something out, in the, out loud and just saying it out loud. And um, it, that's wonderful if we can do that. I've a feeling that once we... Yeah, you know, take it on the road and take it to Edinburgh. I have a feeling I'll be having a lot of these conversations. I, I think I think you will. I certainly found that when I wrote about my story, and it's it's an amazing yeah. feeling of solidarity that yeah. allows other people just to go me too, which is in a different context yeah. to our me too exactly. that we know. But it, it is really wonderful. So I mean, don't underestimate the power of that. And I'm sure you don't. So I'm, I'm sorry for being I don't, the one no, to sound. Um, you feel a great responsibility yeah. for the audience. You know, you're holding them. Yeah, um, and and. Uh, come back to the play I did before when we were in Belfast with it my god I was so we were all so nervous mm. because there was a collective trauma in mm. the audience a shared trauma yes. and you so you you have to take responsibility for that when you step out on stage you're not just entertaining you're no. you're like having a dialogue really yeah with the audience exactly that's really well put Rachel I have to ask you about cotton fingers because it's not a slang that I am familiar with or was until I I started reading about your play so tell us about cotton fingers Uh, it's a word that uh, your first friend uses for tampons Uh, somebody else asked me is it an Irish phrase um, I was just looking I was looking for Irish slang words for tampon and cotton fingers came up on the internet. I think it's American. It's just much more general. Yeah. But I still liked it. I liked the idea of cotton because it was for the NHS as well. I was thinking of sort of hospital sheets and things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, that sounded uh, nice and gentle. So I went with cotton fingers. Um, is it funny, Rachel, this play? It's very I hope so. <laughs> Very funny. She's been quite. Yeah, it, it's very funny. It has to be because it's such a heavy, such a heavy subject. Yeah. Um, there had to be elements of humour in there. Just, it's naturally funny, really. It's not trying. Again, Aoife's not trying mm. to be anything but herself. <laughs> and it just makes it funny then, um, her sense of humour. Rachel, you grew up in uh, quite a working class situation and you mentioned your um, parents splitting up when you were quite young. Yeah. Um, and Aoife, this character, is from a, a working class Catholic background. Just on that issue of class, which is another stigmatising thing and mm-hmm. something that mm-hmm. probably we don't talk enough about um, and we're talking mm-hmm. more about, which is great. As an aspect of your work generally, is that very important? Yes, yeah, it is. Because 
because I'm working class, I find it difficult to write outside of my class. Mm. Um, I would be worried it wouldn't be authentic. Um, that was one of the first decisions. Or even though she was going to be from Belfast, she was going to be from a council estate in Belfast. Mm -hmm. And it makes it quite, um, it really sort of highlights the fact that, you know, if you're at a socioeconomic disadvantage, you, you're going to suffer more yeah. under cer certain healthcare legislation. And it's yeah. not fair. <laughs> I think it's that you quote know. you found, Rachel, says rich people have abortions and poor people have to have kids. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of uh, distinction is, is very real. I mean, it was. I always felt like I was able to get the money together to get the flight to London, to pay for a hotel, to have my abortion, to pay for the abortion in England, you know. But then yeah. I was always thinking about how money is such a barrier. Like if you didn't have that, yeah. you literally would yeah, be forced yeah to have a baby that you shouldn't have yeah, and condemned yeah. to that life that you shouldn't have. So you, it, it's really, you've no control over the future of your, your, your destiny, really. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's, what, it's what will happen in Alabama as well. Mm. Like people who have money can just, can just leave the state. Yes. And people yeah. who haven't can't. And it's an extra crush of misogyny, you mm, know, yeah. and control over, over women, keep them in their place. It's like... It's terrifying. Yeah. Rachel, just on a subject, not on, a, on abortion, if you don't mind for a second. I, um, I read as well that you grew up in a house that you didn't have many books. You didn't see a play until you were an adult yourself after you'd written. Um, no. Essentially. I'm really fascinated by that uh, because obviously you are just a born writer that no matter what kind of circumstances you were in, somehow you were going to find a way to put words together in, in such a, a, a talented way. So what's your own take on how how that happened did you have any kind of mentors in your life where you were encouraged that way or yeah I had a, I had a couple of good English teachers at comprehensive school but I was always quite creative I liked sort of making models and drawing so there, there was always some kind of art going mm. on but no there was there was no there was no books in the house and then the first the, the first thing I wanted to be when I when I left school was I wanted to be a music journalist mm. so I started I read lots of music magazines um, and that that sort of transformed then into writing a novel. Okay. Um, I think it was music really rather than literature. Um, yeah. And what are you doing at the moment then after this? Obviously, you're going to tour this, and this is the most important thing happening. But are you working on something else? I'm writing a novel. Uh, I've got a novella coming out later this year. Okay, because I'm really intrigued to read more of your stuff after hearing about this and dying to see the play too. And Amy, you're having a, a very good run of it too. You're going to be, you're in Animals, which um, yes, was premiered yeah. at the Sundance Film Festival. Yeah, that um, we get a release date in the Picture House Cinemas on the 2nd of August and Actually, it's exactly when we open the fringe with cotton fingers. It's wow, that's going to be a big few weeks <laughs> so for you. Nice. <laughs> Brilliant. So hopefully it's a good sign. Yeah, well, both of you, just before you go, could you just tell me why people should go and see this play and what you hope they get out of it? Because no matter, I think, what you think of this topic, you're going to have a good time sitting with Aoife and hearing a slice of her life. Um. And the way Rachel writes is so beautiful. It's so sensory and um, poetic. And there's lots of lovely echoes through the play. It looks stunning. And um, I hope that people get from it. I hope they will come away um, having been moved 
you know, and at least by this one young woman and go away having a wee think about it, <laughs> I hope. Yeah, yeah. And um, for the people that do need this voice, then I really hope to come away feeling that it's been somehow cathartic for them and mm-hmm. they feel they can go and talk and yeah. share. Yeah, and right, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I really hope that it starts up some, some conversations, really, um, bet- between women uh, about their experiences and their thoughts and and their hopes for the future. And Yeah, keep talking, keep yeah, pushing again. Pushing and I back. suppose we hope as well that it's sort of going to somehow move the situation in the north on because sometimes art can do things that other other mediums can't, you know, and that you can show this woman's story. It can make people, as you say, Amy, think in a different way, maybe change their minds a little bit, understand that it's such an individual decision and it's not for anyone else to decide for someone. We hope all that anyway. And um, I just want to say both of you, especially Rachel, thank you for writing about this because um, it isn't, there isn't a wealth of, of um, material on this subject in art and there should be more because it's such a big issue for women. It's such a normal, everyday issue for so many women and yet we've treated it like this big controversial issue. Um, so on the on the anniversary of the repeal the 8th, I think it's a wonderful thing to, to have this touring Ireland. So thank you very much. I hope you can join us in Dublin then. <laughs> oh, keep me away. Keep me away. <laughs> I mean, don't keep me away. You won't be able to keep me away is what I'm saying. Thank you so, thank you so much for talking to us on the Women's Podcast. Thank you. And good luck with everything and all the rehearsals. Okay. Those dates for Cotton Fingers again are the Mac Belfast, 23rd of May, Derry Playhouse in Derry, 24th and 25th of May, and then the Samuel Beckett Theatre in Dublin from the 29th to the 31st of May, and finally the Mermaid Arts Centre in Bray, County Wicklow, on the 1st of June. Thanks to our guests today, Rachel Trezise, Amy Malloy, Circa Tunney, Katha Pollitt and Orla O'Connor. And remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.